Mr. A here, saying, how y'all doing? Yo! Are you ready to rumble? Or should I say Welcome to the Rumble. We are back and better than ever, helping you stay ready so you don't have to get ready. We don't want you sucker punch. So we are here each and every week helping you keep your guard up. I'm Jeremy Lavelle with Remedy Claims Consulting, and your uh, and your coach uh, can be found at Claims Coach on TikTok and on Instagram. And alongside of me today is a very special guest, Mr. Matt Mulholland of Listen to This Boy. Yeah. We like to call him the professor. That's what I call him. And finally, the surreptitiously satisfying, the enigmatically intriguing, the one and the only baby case, Miss Donna Lavelle. How's everybody doing today? I'm doing good. Awesome. How are you doing? Awesome. 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 So, man, I, you know, I am just trying to keep my head above water. I'm not going to lie. My legs are getting yeah. tired. And I am just doing everything I can to fight these carriers. Well, not fight them, but at least try to explain to them where we're coming from. And the indoctrination of some of these adjusters is always, you know, an interest. You never know what you're going to hear next. You really don't That's know. true. Um, you know, I, I don't mind saying fight. There's an argument every time. It is adversarial. Uh, we are asking them to pay more than what they want to. And that's just part of business more than anything else. So I don't yeah. think it's a bad thing to say that we fight insurance companies. Well, I, well, okay. I, I just, I mean, I, I don't always want to just dig in and just, I, I don't always want to have my boxing gloves up because I'm there to just simply provide a preponderance of proof, if you will. So, um, Donna, did you have a fun fact that you yep. were going to share? What's, what's up? Yes, I found out some very important information today. We went to Home Depot, and I found out that black cock and white cock, there's no difference. The same one size. is not larger than the other. They're the okay. same size. So, so black cock and white so cock are the same size. does not matter. Oh, okay. I've been wondering that. Well, that's, is uh, there a that's... different taste? Um, I didn't taste it since it's not supposed to be eaten. It does smell the same. We determined. <laughs> yeah, it does I think that's an important exactly distinction at times. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, guys, the topics will be discussed in three 15-minute rounds. When you hear this sound, this means the sound the round has begun, and when you hear this sound. The round is over. Now, I want to remind everybody that this is not a debate show. This is basically us just unpacking sort of the, um, you know, the do's and the don'ts and the how's and the why's. And yeah, every now and then a debate breaks out. I'm not sure that Matt and I are going to agree on absolutely I'm everything. I'm going to purposely disagree with you on everything it, just to have some fun. Uh, well, that's. And I was kind of counting on that. But, guys, I am, I am really looking forward to this because we're going to be kind of digging in. We're going to be digging into some really cool stuff today, and uh, we're going to talk about some of the different weapons that um, that the carrier uses. And uh, round one starts right after this. One of the most difficult claims you can work is a contents claim. It requires extreme detail and significant documentation. Ricky McGregor with Monarch Claim Services is the expert you need on your side. She will handle on-site evaluation, inventory, photo documentation, pricing, and overall contents claim organization. She will work with your team beginning to end so you can focus on the rest of the claim. Do your client a favor and call Ricky McGregor with Monarch Claim Services. You can reach her at 513 515-783-1434. That's 515-783-1434 or find her on the web at monarchclaimservices.com. Round one, endorsements. Now, Matt, one of the things that I have seen by and large, and it's, it's often a misinterpretation of how an endorsement works, but I have seen them use endorsements that are paid for, um, whether it's a matching endorsement, whether it's a, a mold endorsement. Mm -hmm. 
where they use these things to actually cap things that should be under coverage A, but they they use it's like oh all we have to pay on this on any of this is just this cap, this five thousand dollars, this ten thousand dollars, and then nothing else is covered as it pertains to this loss and this. Have you found that to kind of be something that they're weaponizing quite a bit? Um weaponizing, I don't know if I know what you mean by that a hundred percent other than just reduction of coverages. Uh we, we've seen the exclusions sure. of I mean. fungi and and a lot of different uh, water-type damages, wind-driven rain, wind. All of these exclusions have been coming out with people's renewals. And if they do reduce coverages, they're supposed to reduce the premiums. And they, they don't because it's also tied in with an increase in premiums statewide or zip code wide or something along those lines. But then they give you the option to purchase those coverages back in another endorsement. So if you're given the option to have more coverages for that endorsement, they charge you more, probably more than they would have reduced it when they took it out of the original coverages, which I think maybe that's weaponizing, (laughs) you know? Well, I agree. I I don't disagree with that. I don't just the biggest thing that I see is how is how they use that endorsement. So I just want to give you sort of a a for instance. Okay. You have you have a water loss. You have a water loss, and due to this water loss, um, mold occurs. Okay, now mold is typically under most policies it is excluded, but often covered under uh, under endorsement, and it is generally capped at like five thousand, ten thousand, depending sure. on the size of the property. Often, and the size what you're dealing with, it is it is it is capped at a very at, at a lower amount. And then as soon as you start to mitigate, it's like, well, and you turn in your $15,000, $20,000 mitigation bill, they try to cut the entire mitigation down to $5,000 and you can't spend another another dime on that. And that is often what is told to a policyholder. Now, a policyholder is completely and totally ill-equipped to make that argument alone as it pertains to having to provide access to get to the yeah, product, all of these things. You're adding in all kinds of other Go stuff ahead. into those endorsements that the access to the fungus in order to be able to clean it, the testing of the air and, and materials to identify where the fungus is or what type it is and to test afterwards to make sure that it's gone is all included in that ALE benefits just to get out of the house because there's freaking mold uh, would also be in that same limitation. And the rebuild from all that access is also oftentimes in that limitation. But on top of that, all of that stuff, most of that could still end up being under coverage A under water damage, depending on what actually caused that mold. There's water tied to it as well. What the carriers often don't st- well, don't tell the policyholders, and, and maybe this is a way to weaponize that, is to say, well, there's mold, so it all falls under this limit. When in reality, all the excess over water, the stuff that you don't have to do for water, but we're going to have to do it because there happens to be mold present, the stuff that is specifically to the mold that can be separated from the water, that's the stuff that um, should fall under that mold endorsement, only that. So any any increase. So I want to delineate the I want to delineate the differences between two very different terms. There is the term called remediation, and then there is called then there is the term mitigation, and those are not the same no, words. Not. And I and I often feel like that when it comes to the mold, what the mold cap is it what what goes against that mold cap, if you will, is the remediation effort not the mitigation effort. So for example, antimicrobial, when you spray antimicrobial, is that a mitigating effort or is that a remediating effort? And in my opinion, and the way that I understand it, because it is used widespread in situations where there is no mold, it is a mitigating effort because you're preventing it from growing. It's not to kill what's So there. it would depend on what product you're using and the application purpose. Uh, but most of the time, you're right. It is sprayed on there as a preventative. And if it is a preventative, then you are preventing further damage. You are mitigating. Uh, the, the act of mitigating is basically, in an insurance standpoint, to save the insurance company money. If you are doing something that will prevent them from having to pay out more 
then you are mitigating. If you are doing something to correct damages, then you are remediating. And that is really the, the basis between those. So there are some antimicrobials that also kill. And if you're spraying those on to kill some of the microbial or bacterial growth or something along those lines, then you would be remediating maybe at the same time as mitigating. But that is a good distinction. That, 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 and that's really what I want. So when you're, when you, all of you Xactimate guys out there, when you're providing, you know, sublimit coverages and you're getting all into those coverages to make sure that it's being calculated and how you use your coverages within Xactimate, you're delineating all of these different things. That is your guideline. Am I mitigating in this line item? Or am I remediating in this line item? So, for example, a remediating line item would be when you sand the studs. A remediating line item may be when you shellac or you encapsulate certain framing members to prevent further growth of mold. Those are remediating efforts. But to cut the drywall out? No, that is a mitigating effort. And that is not something that would be included. Just because the drywall has mold on it it would have to come out because it's wet anyway. Well, I, and so I disagree. Cannot... Okay. We got our first yeah. disagreement. Oh my God. Hang on a second. All right. There I mean, we if go. We're, <laughs> if we're cutting drywall out because it's wet, then that is, that is part of remove and replace. That is part of remediation. You don't, if I cut that drywall out because it's wet, am I doing that because I'm saving the insurance company money by doing that? I, I mean, maybe, it be. maybe it'll allow me to dry faster. Maybe I can make that argument that the reason I'm taking that drywall out is because I can then dry the stuff behind it faster and I can save the insurance company money on the time of mitigation of the dry out or something along those lines. But the act of cutting drywall out is a part of a removal in a remove and replace type scenario, isn't it? It is the damage to drywall. It is, but... But but you're but well in that case you're remediating drywall you're not remediating you're remediating water you're not I'm not saying that it's not remediating in effort but it's not the remediation of mold primarily well and that's so where there the is mold the overlap I believe yeah should be. you can cut it out for water yeah and if mold happens to be on that great now there are additional things that you should do when cutting out drywall that has mold on it that you don't need to do when cutting out drywall that is just wet with clean water. You know, there's PPE, there's encapsulation, there's there's uh, negative air machines, different things along those lines. But that could all still be part of mitigation to prevent the spread of it. So you are mitigating sure. mold issues, potentially. You're, well, again, and you're trying to stop the spread yeah. of it. And that's what and when it comes into the mitigation part, we are we are we are bound by the policy to to mitigate it from further damages and that's what i think so where coverage a is available it should come first where no coverage a is available that's why we have an endorsement so the 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 primary insurance here the primary availability of insurance and coverage comes from the coverage a is when that falls short is when the endorsement is then plugged in and that's how we, and that's how we use that endorsement because remember endorsements are not always something that adds coverage there are times that endorsements can what remove coverage right and so we can pull those coverages away and when the, if, and when we pull those coverages away because of the endorsement that exists, like you'll often see, you'll often see that down in coastal regions. Like I know like TWIA will have endorsements against certain uh, TWIA is Texas wind insurance agency within their policy. They will have certain endorsements in there that does not, uh, that does not allow uh, wind driven rain in certain cases. Well, maybe not other policies. TWIA would be the policy that you would get for the wind and then those other policies, they will re they will remove wind-driven rain as apparel, and they address that with an endorsement where they you have to have a storm created a storm created opening in order for water damage to be covered. And with no storm created opening, that endorsement is a qualifier before we pay for any water. Am I damage. making you nervous, Jeremy? Are you really really nervous not to get things right right now? You're <laughs> no, I, I mean, we're edited, so I'm, I'm, I'm super comfortable. I'm just making yeah. sure. We're going to make you look like <laughs> No, I'm super good. Are you nervous, no, Matt? No. <laughs> Matt's never nervous. No. He's the professor. 
I, I find that more yeah, endorsements so exist I, that remove coverages than uh, add them in. You, you'll find in additional coverages in a lot of policies, instead of in an endorsement or be under additional coverages, you might find fungi in there as well um, that might have some limitations. And the only time that it's actually on the policy is if the deck page actually activates it or something along those lines. So you have to look in the policy to see what triggers that additional coverage, but it might just be built into the regular policy without the endorsement. And then the endorsement might change that additional coverage language. So the funny thing about endorsements is you're, it's a pain in the ass. You have to have like three screens up with the exact same document open in several different screens just so you don't have to scroll back and forth over and over again to see what gets deleted, what gets added in, what gets modified, and what the final version is. It's, it's not the most fun thing in the world. Right. I played a game of Risk once. <gasps> where the, this particular game of risk allowed you to change the rules along the way. And so whoever won game one got to make a rule and you would write it in this sticker that you would put directly on top of other rules in the rule book. So you were permanently modifying the rule book. And it was just like endorsements and policies. Everything changes, but I wish we could take stickers. I wish that they would send us a mailer with the endorsements with a sticker to just put on top of another part in the policy so we can see what the actual final version of it is. It'd be nice. Well, I mean, well, any education, any education that they would want to send out at some point, whether it's a video or something, because because the the effort of educating the policyholder at all. And it's not their job to educate, really, because I've said this before a million times. Insurance is not a service. It's a you know, it is a product. You know, part of part- selling a product is to provide the best product possible with as much service to back it up as possible. I said this on my podcast last night, actually. I said, dear insurance companies, whoever's watching this, the first, the first one to do this is going to be the leader in the industry. Make some little videos, put them on your website that explain each section of your policy in layman's terms. Explain it to us. We'll actually abide by that. Right. Tell us what it says. I'd love that. And we'll, we'll provide the service that you don't provide. There's too many policies. I've, I've thought about well, doing that so many times. It's just too many. Well, yeah. And then they like to change the definition of things and how they look at things too often yeah. as it pertains to whatever gift. Ambiguity you know, I've heard ridiculous sure. things. Absolutely. And that we'll get into here in just a minute as far as because round two is all about ambiguous language and how they use ambiguous language to suit what it is, whatever their narrative is. And so that is that is that is that's coming up. But I want I want to wrap up the endorsement thing and just you mentioned uh, limited matching endorsement earlier. I'd like to touch on that real quick. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. So. You know, often there are anti-matching clauses in policies that say that they won't match the um, the non-damaged materials won't be replaced if there is a difference between the damaged materials and the new materials being used to replace the damaged materials of uh, discontinuation of obsolescence where they might go into color, fading, marring. Uh, texture or dimensional differences, these, these kinds of words. And then they might add in, in an endorsement or an additional coverage that gets triggered, a limited matching. And a lot of times that limited matching is specifically designed for discontinuation or obsolescence situations. But everyone needs to realize that matching is an aesthetic thing. It is for matching to make something look the same. That's what matching is compatibility concerns, different sizes, different profiles of materials that will not work well with each other. They're not tested together for wind or hail resistance or chemical resistance together. Different sizes that don't line up with seal strips and things on roofs. All of these are compatibility concerns that have nothing to do with matching. So you can avoid the matching crap altogether by talking about something that isn't on that list. Look at that list. What's on it? Is it those items that make it the only reason you have to replace those undamaged items? Or is there something else involved? Right. And then and the things that you were just discussing is where we refer to like, kind, and quality. And that's the purposes of like, kind, and quality and common construction is the very thing that you said right there. Man. That's the end of round one. And man. 
that went super fast. I can't believe how quickly we got got through that. that did was, you have something else to say? Did you want to wrap that up? Oh, no, no, no. It's, on that? But we're going to tie in exactly what you were talking about straight into ambiguity with the like kind of quality terms. Hey, yeah, right, exactly. And, and that starts right after this. Public adjusters, listen up. It's Jeremy Lavelle, owner of Remedy Claims Consulting, host of the Rumble, and most importantly, your claims coach. Public adjuster training is one of the hardest things to find. Sure, you can take some online seminars, you can show up to conferences, but none of them tailor training just for you until now. Whether you need to learn how to estimate, scope, negotiate, or prospect, I can help you drill down on the skills you want to develop. Maybe you're just starting out and you need to learn the claims process from a to Z? Are you just wanting help on strategy on a specific claim? I can help you find the traction you were looking for and learn how to truly control the narrative in the ever-changing world of claims. You can reach out to me directly at 888-596-8772 or you can find me on the web at remedyclaims.com and just click get started. That's 888-596-8772 or remedyclaims.com and click get started. You can even shoot me an email Jeremy at remedyclaims.com. That's J E R O M Y at remedyclaims.com. It's time to move your career to the next level. Round two ambiguous language. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have got like a whole long list of things that I would like to talk about, but I am going to defer to Matt Mulholland on this one because he he he's he's ready to go I can tell by looking at the video monitor that I'm looking at right now that Matt is about to uh tear the wall down ambiguity is so. is a very big topic um and it's really the reason that we have so many issues in insurance you know policies are written one way and they can be read so many different ways in most states, the way that benefits the non-writing party, the, the signing party, the policyholder, whichever way that you can interpret that that benefits them the most is the way that you're supposed to interpret it in most states. Not all of them. Some states actually specify that they're supposed to apply it the way that the original writer's intent was designed, and they have to prove what the intent was. It's kind of crazy. But that's the minority of states. So let's talk about ambiguity uh, that goes to the benefit of the policyholder. We just talked about matching, and you said like, kind, and quality, which is the perfect example for this. What the hell is like, kind, and quality? How exactly the same is well, the word like? Terms. You know, <laughs> you're, you're like Red a fish like in many pink, ways, Jeremy. Not- you know, it depends on the kind of fish. Oh, yeah? How- um, some fish have a lot of uh, whiskers on yeah. their face, just like you, just like me. Uh, so you're like that's, a catfish. That's true. Uh, does that mean that you are a fish? What is like kind? It does not mean. In the animal kingdom, there are kinds of animals. Then there are subspecies and, and different races, even of those different subspecies and kinds. But we're not defining kind that way necessarily. Kind can be a broad term or a narrow term. If it's very broad kind, if we're talking about shingles, like we were talking about right at the end there, asphalt shingles, is that the kind? So any asphalt shingle would be like kind to any other asphalt shingle. We could narrow that down to a very narrow description of kind and say, well, there's architectural shingles and there's three tab shingles. And then we can make it even more narrow and say that there's 20 year three tab shingles and 30 year three tab shingles. Are those the same kind, but different qualities like quality quality could be so many different things. They don't define like kind and quality in any policy I've ever seen. So what's going to benefit the policyholder most? If it's more beneficial in this situation to read it as a very broad term, then that's the way it's read for that situation. It doesn't mean that it's the way that benefits policyholders the most among all, on average, types of claims. It's for that specific situation. Until they define it in the policy, that's how it's going to be. Or until case law specifies the way it's supposed to be read. So like kind of quality is a very interesting term. It's very broad. I agree. And, and well, I, and I say this, I say this a lot. Reading is fundamental. 
Do you know what I mean? And so when we read the words like, kind, and quality, and you're looking at what's being done, and you don't feel like like, kind, and quality is being achieved, do you know what I mean? On the face of what you're saying, if this kind ain't like that kind, or this quality is not like that quality, then we've got a problem. But if you're sitting there telling me that, I mean, that could that could even ad- address matching. Yeah. That could address, like kind could address all sorts of things. Could. Do you know what I'm and saying? So many policies don't Look even use that terminology. They'll actually say um, um, equivalent construction for equivalent use. And the word equivalent clearly means the same as. So identical. Like, kind, and quality doesn't exclude matching, so to speak. It's just materials of like, kind, and quality. But you get into the ambiguity of that. I could have an architectural shingle made by GAF. I really love the roof examples, by the way. So I'm going to give a lot of those. Uh, Architectural shingles made by GAF are lifetime warranted. Architectural shingles made by TAMCO have a lifetime warranty. Are they the same quality? Are they like quality? I don't actually know because it's ambiguous. No one actually knows. Whichever way benefits a policyholder most is the way it's supposed to be. Personally, I know between those which one is a better shingle. I've done my own testing on it. I'm not going to say on your show. But one is definitely a higher quality than the other, even though they're both lifetime. So there's... That's such a broad term. I, I hate it when you have an engineering firm that says, here's seven shingles that are like kind of quality to this one that's been discontinued. And they're nothing alike. They did that with the Atlas Chalet. Donut Engineering had an article uh, that specified like kind of quality to the Atlas Chalet shingle, which was a faux laminate. It was a three-tab base where they put extra glue and extra granules on top of it to make it look like a laminate shingle from a distance. There was nothing else like that. That kind of shingle was a faux laminate. They called it a shingle, not a shingle, a shingle on their uh, marketing. There's no shingles being sold today. So if they even called it something different on the marketing because they knew it was different, (laughs) what kind of shingle is it? All right. Like kind of quality is so ambiguous. Too many times that gets used against policyholders, though. Well, and here's here's another word. I'm going to throw this word out to you. Prompt. Prompt. I like... Prompt is yeah, another yeah. word. That so is it prompt. prompt to file a claim six months after the damage occurred, but you just discovered that it was there? Or I like the word immediate. Immediate means something a lot faster than prompt, I think. It definitely has a feel of being... And immediate's an available word. Yeah, immediate is in a lot of policies. You must uh, notify yeah, us of the damages yeah. immediately. But immediate is impossible. If immediate is within that second that you discover the damages, you can't dial a phone fast enough for immediate. If immediate is two years, yeah, within two true. years, it could be. Because there is a period of time that is going to expire between the time that you discover the damages and the time that you file the claim. Some time is going to pass. It's impossible for you to do it immediately. So how much time is acceptable between the time that the damage occurred, the time that you discover, and the time that you actually file? If you file within five minutes, is that immediate? Well, what I would... Sounds like it might be. Well, what I would say is there's discovery... Or there is there is knowledge of, and then there's what comes next. And whatever comes next needs to be notification if you're going to use the word immediate. There is knowledge of, and then there's what comes next. And so that's, that is how I feel like immediate would be achieved. And so was the very next thing that happened was notification. So did you reach down, pick up your phone, and dial, and dial the number to make them aware of the damage? And so, or, or of the occurrence, maybe not the damage of the occurrence. What's the extent of the damage? I don't know yet. I notified you immediately. Yeah. I, and you almost have to <laughs> so do it that way. I can't even tell you whether or not. This yeah, is that's crazy. You, yeah. You'd and have so, to figure but, out if there's coverages later on. You'd have to figure out if you even want to file a claim after you notify the insurer of the damage. And they're going to file a claim for you when you notify well, them of it. So you might have a shit ton of claims on your record simply because you're trying to meet the conditions of your policy. 
I think it would be really right. fun and that is held to call you. them and notify them every time a leaf lands on your roof. <laughs> just let just just stay and check yeah. in with you guys. Let yeah. you know leaf has hit the roof. I exactly. want you to know that. I had some um, granules fall off my roof last <laughs> three time. Three inch hailstones have also hit it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> on the roof because the hail knocked him out of the tree. Granular loss is not is is not covered damage. <laughs> That's what I love it when they say that granular loss is not covered damage. Yes, of course it is. Not once. Of course it is. Ever. Talk about you ambiguity. Know. Are granules part of your covered property? I would they are. so. I would so if your so. granules aren't Absolutely. there any longer, they're yeah. gone. Is it theft by hail? <laughs> are you, I don't know. If your car gets stolen, is the steering wheel covered right. as well? Is. Or is that not covered yeah. property? It's not covered property. Yeah, of My granules is. are gone. Absolutely. They're just gone. There's no exclusion for gone and if that's granules. <laughs> right. It's it's lost. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> all of these things, and and I, here's another one. This is this is this is one of my this is one of my favorite terms, and this is actually found in ALE, and I have found that a lot of carriers are. And I, and I use this word, weaponizing the ALE coverage to force people into lower and faster settlements that fit their narrative. Because within the policy, it says something along the lines of, and I'm not quoting a specific policy, the shortest amount of time possible. Shortest amount of time necessary to make repairs or up to six months or 12 months or maximum or something along those lines. But they don't tell you when that time frame starts. Is it from the date of loss? Is it from the date that you filed the claim? Or is it from the date of the first payment? Or is it from the date that you come to an agreement? There are cases in many states where it's from the date where an agreement was made, where it was possible for you to start. Because until it is possible for you to start, then the shortest period of time to make those repairs hasn't occurred. And I like that. That's Here's my other question. Here's my other question. If you have not agreed on the scope of the repairs that need to be made, how do you begin repairs when you don't even know what the scope of the repairs to be made are? And so, like, I had a client that we haven't even agreed on. And to, to, to this day, they've cut his ALE coverage off, and he has... No, we have no agreed scope at this point in time. So there, there are cases in different and states I, I, you I might be able to point to to say that this is this has been determined to be an issue that they are, should still have ALE benefits. Now, if you hit that maximum amount, twelve months from the data loss, that might be in there. There's there's no turning back at that point. But they don't even owe the claim until an agreement is made, or an appraisal award is submitted, or a court judgment is given. You know, the lost payment provision very clearly states when they owe on the claim. And unless it's a re, uh, reimbursement policy where they only pay for what has been spent, then they have to give you that initial payment of ACV to get you started. Now, if, if it's impossible for the policyholder to start the work because an agreement hasn't been made and money hasn't been set aside enough to actually start the work, then the shortest amount of time necessary is still happening. It's it's. There's no way for them to be able to say they should have started repairs when we never gave them the ability to do so. And as claims are different, one claim to another claim is different. You may have very similar losses and the shortest amount of time to begin the repairs is very different because we've got all of these variables. You may have. You may have a Jeremy Lavelle or a Matt Mulholland on the other side of, on the other side of the phone that is sitting there going, "Now wait a minute! It appears to me that within even the photographs that you've provided me, that it looks like, for example, the carpet has the carpet has been delaminated and and it cannot be cleaned." Now, ordinarily, I would say that we could clean the carpet in a loss like this, but because of the condition of the carpet, it cannot be cleaned, and so we need to get you know, the carpet replaced. No, we disagree. Okay. So for as so long as we disagree all the way up through appraisal 
court costs, whatever the case may be, for so long as we disagree, as long as there is coverage available within the timelines and the amount of and the amount of limits of liability that are available, then that money needs to be paid. And that, again, this is just how I read the policy. Yeah. This is what it's I think. It's ambiguity you know working I mean? in your favor, for sure. This and, and it can be a little bit ambiguous because they never really state, you know, when that time frame starts. But it, it, because it is written ambiguously, you know, the shortest amount of time necessary, well, everybody is going to be a little bit different on what their conditions are. Someone that has a lot of money might be able to start the work a lot sooner than someone that has to wait for those insurance funds to come through before they can start the work. Someone sure. with a job that is out of town might have to wait a little bit longer to get started. And that might come into play on the how long it takes to perform that work. So it's not how long it would take a contractor to perform the work. It doesn't say that. This is the amount of time necessary to make the repairs, which could include so many different things. But you're right. They weaponize the crap out of that. They use it as a pressure point in order to get people to accept less money because they're going to cut them off. Look, you're coming up on your deadline. You better accept our offer now because we're cutting off your ALE benefits otherwise. And it's, it is utilized right. as a way. And you're going to end up spending more money in ALE expenses because we're going to cut that off. You're going to spend more money delaying this than you are trying to get. So take the money that you were going to that you were going to have that you're going to have to pay in rent, apply it to your loss. I literally had an adjuster explain this to an insured prior to my involvement. Literally explain that's why he, that's what he should be doing with his money. And I think that is absolutely awful that is not what we bought that is not the product that i purchased service aside matt service aside that is not the product that i purchased that is not what my intention was when i started paying absolutely right so ambiguous language is often weaponized guys i hope we answered some questions there and i want to just say this guys no matter what if you feel like that there is a very uh, if you feel like the interpretation of a policy is weaponized, make sure Matt and I are not attorneys. I, I, I encourage you to do what you can to build a relationship with a, with an attorney. I know Matt uses it, Remington. I right? do talk to Remington quite often. He's not the only one. Uh, so it depends on what state the loss is in. Yeah. Every state's a little different. And I know that there are attorneys... I know that there are attorneys out there like Stephen Michael Bush that is happy to extend a helping hand, Galen Hare. All of these guys are there ready to answer any of these questions. And so sometimes it is worth just going and getting a legal rendering from these guys and what they think. And I've even challenged them to go to underwriting on an interpretation of a policy and give me official legal rendering from underwriting on what. Tell you a little uh, trick that I like to do that really gets them on the ambiguity issue. It's about the only way you can win an ambiguity argument as a public adjuster, in my opinion, is to give them a reference to case law of some kind where it's already been decided or to show them a different example from a different policy where it actually says what they're saying that their policy says. And the best example there is the farmer smart plan. Holy crap, worst policy ever written, but it is so specific and it spe specifies that they will not pay for things in this way, this way, and this way. And because it specifies exactly what that adjuster is trying to say, you can show them the farmer smart plan and say, well, how come your policy doesn't actually say it? This is an example of a policy where it actually says that. Your policy doesn't actually say that. So- it doesn't say that. It's about the only way. I actually saw your TikTok. What was the, what was the language that you were talking about there? Just go ahead and give us that. that I've got four that, videos on I this. I think the one that's just... dropped so far was on uh, warranty. So here, here's the premise. Oftentimes. Uh, whether a warranty is covered. Whether the warranty in my roof is right, covered. So, so if yeah, you were okay, to say, you yeah, talk about I that. can't. I can't just repair my roof because the new shingles that are being installed will have to be cut in such a way that it would void the warranty. And then they would come back and say, well, we don't owe for warranty. The only policy I've ever seen that has actually specified that they do not insure for warranty is the farmer smart plan. So how come this policy has it? Do you think they just threw something in there to have some extra words for the hell of it? Of course not. 
they had to write it out because it was inherently in it. And if the policy doesn't have it written out, then it's inherently in it. When you replace a new shingle Correct. or new material of any kind, your replacement as a whole is with new materials, which is stupid that that's an argument that I've had to have over the years. But replacement cost value is zero depreciation, no age. They are brand new. And when you install a brand new material, you expect to have that brand new materials warranty from the manufacturer. And if you void that immediately upon installation, then it is no longer replacement. So Correct. warranties are covered in that regard. Now, if you just have something that voids your warranty that isn't itself a covered loss, that's that's not part of what I'm talking about. I'm talking about during the replacement of covered damages, if the new materials being used to replace the covered damages end up having their warranty voided because of the methodology of installation that the insurance company is trying to shove down your throats, if that voids the warranty, they can't do that. It's no longer a replacement. Correct. Correct. And I and 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 just to like so if you're up there putting Christmas lights on your house and you decide to staple through the shingles on the ridge and it starts to leak. That might actually be a covered loss. Your warranty. Um, it's not well, intentional damage. I, I, well, that not the warranty there. The warranty that you're voided, you can't call and file a claim because your warranty is now voided. Because that wouldn't you be the reason you're replacing those shingles, that, right? So the dam- the shingles that were damaged in that case, which might still be under uh, coverages, I-, I think they call that the idiot clause. Um, I was an idiot is the yeah. cause of loss. So you file a claim for being an idiot and you're fine. <laughs> so if you have your shingles being replaced as a result of idiot damages, uh, then if the replacement of those shingles leads to those new shingles being installed, uh, losing their warranty because of the methodology of installation, then that is something that the insurance company cannot put you in that situation. They can't just say we don't owe for warranty unless their policy specifies that they don't. So, boom, mic drop. If we've got if we've got time at the if we've got time at the <laughs> if we've got time at the end of the show, I want to do this quick little claim study with you um, that has to do with the farmer's policy that I'm working right. with. But uh, we've got round three coming up, and it is going to be something that is near and dear to your heart, Matt. But we're not going to have him teach a class, so everybody, go ahead and uh, and 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 listen up because we're going to talk about weaponized engineers reporting in round three because it starts right after. I'm going to grab a drink. Round. Choosing someone to help with your online marketing, make sure you go with someone that has years of experience. Our good friend Sally at Thrive has over 20 years of digital marketing experience. She can build you a beautiful 15-page sleek, interactive website, post on your social media platforms multiple times a week. She can do a video, an amazing CRM to manage and uh, maintain and nurture your clients, text, email marketing, review generation, a business listing on 60 plus search engines, including three voice networks, appointment scheduling, estimates, invoices, payment processing, and more. She will also create for you on uh, on Google, a Facebook page, in Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you need these for your businesses, she'll, cr- she'll help you create those pages on all of those sites. If you already have these pages, she'll optimize them for you as well. Call or message Sally today. If you want to get started, you can reach her at 214-789-1651. Again, her name is Sally Brigance. Her number is 214-789-1651. And uh, you'll also get a landing page the day you sign up. When you send her a referral that signs up with her, she'll credit your billing account. Logos are also available. Um, and she also offers a lead generation service in SEO, search engine optimization, where she can uh, guarantee you to appear on the first page of Google or your money back. It is spelled T-H-R-Y-B. And you can find my good friend Sally Brigance, and that's spelled S-A-L-L-I-E, Brigance, B-R-I-G-A-N-C-E. And she can be reached once again at 214-789-1651. Round three, engineering reports. I just had an engineering report that I fought. So, um, 
Um, lots of lots of good stuff here. I'm gonna go ahead. I I mean, I have found. I even had an actual agent tell me the other day. It's like you don't. See, the engineer's not out there to confirm anything. The engineer's out there to get the denial. I actually had an insurance agent tell me that. <laughs> so that they could go out there and get wow yeah he actually told me that that is so different the engineers out there for the yeah denial. i mean generally the premise is hey mr insured we don't really know what's going on in this roof but we don't want to just deny your claim so we're going to do our best to make sure that we understand what's going on so we're going to hire the most professional smartest person we could possibly find and have them go out and take a look just to make sure that uh, we're not overlooking some coverages that we can provide for you. So we're going to send out the smartest individuals alive, engineers, which are clearly, I mean, they, they built space shuttles, so they must know what they're talking about when it comes to a roof. Makes sense. Right. Absolutely. But they've never put yeah. on a roof. <laughs> well, um, and, and this is actually the case study that I was talking about that I want to do at the end of the show, but I don't want to take up the whole time telling the story. But he, I asked him, I said, so what is your purpose for this inspection that you're going to be conducting? What's the purpose of your report? He goes, well, to determine causation and to determine repairability. And I said, oh, how many roofs have you repaired? It's such a good question. Well, I've never, yeah. I've never repaired any roofs. Oh. And you're out here to determine whether or not it can be done. And you've never actually gone through the processes of actually repairing one. Okay. I was just curious. Do you mind reflecting that in your report that you've never actually repaired a roof yourself? Because you're the one out here to make that determination. And so I'm very interested to, to know how you make that determination when you've never actually done it. it, it it's such so. a basic thing. Um because they're, they're not allowed to take on a project or a part of a project that is outside of their competency. And that's, that's a legal issue for them. Most states have that codified as part of the code of ethics, but also a legal requirement. So you could file a complaint with the board of engineers in that state and say that he was acting outside his competency if he were to make a determination, an opinion based on his education and experiences of whether or not something is repairable clearly he has no experience whether someone taught him how to do something or not most of the time they're out there doing some form of a brittleness or pliability test but there are plenty of ways that they could identify if something was repairable or not without having to have that experience they could utilize the national academy of forensic engineers uh repair methodology assessment for determining whether or not a roof is repairable and they could have a qualified contractor out there performing those steps that are in that uh, NAFE guide and then observe it and determine based off of the results of that, whether or not it's repairable. That way they're not making that determination with their own opinion without having someone that's qualified out there doing it. That way they're not doing that part of the project and they're not stepping outside their competency. But well, and well, I mean, and that's by and large, I mean, when you talk about, and, and I want to kind of go back to your sort of to your um, your roof sort of acumen. I, I want to talk about that primarily because that is often where we're seeing these engineers yeah. come out. They're not coming out that, you know, very often, uh, you know, it's like I they're not coming out very often to determine, you know, what what was the the cause of loss. Most of us already know what the cause of loss is. Most of the causation has already been answered. Do you know what I'm saying? No, I, I disagree there. In most situations. The vast majority of engineers that are sent out, they're, they're given their assignment, their scope of work, and it usually includes determine the cause of loss, or it might say determine the extent of wind or hail damages to a roof. And built into that determination of the extent is them determining the causation of the damages so that they can figure out which parts of it are caused by wind or hail. So even if that isn't the reason they're going out, they're doing it um, almost on every single one of them. The problem with that, though, is they're asked to identify the cause of loss, a singular one cause, not the causes of loss right. that act on the property that produce that loss. You can have multiple causes of loss. And so an engineer might go out and they might determine that hail and they use this stupid rule of thumb that Haig teaches that is not based in reality, but it would take 
one inch or larger hail to cause damage to a three tab shingle or one and a quarter inch or larger hail to cause damage to an architectural shingle. And so if the hail was less than one inch in size, they'll say, oh, well, the shingle would not have been damaged by this size hail, except for the fact that it's old. So wear and tear is the cause of loss. And then they stop right there and they don't say the wear and tear allowed smaller hail to cause damage to this than otherwise would normally have caused damage. Wear and tear is the what they would call the proximate cause, and that resulted in hail damage from smaller hail. They eliminate the additional language, the additional information. They omit it from their conclusions, and they simply say there was no damage caused by hail. It was all caused by wear and tear. And then the insurance company, in the final acts of this strategy, go in and they say, well, wear and tear is excluded in our policy. Here's the policy language. Wear and tear is excluded as a cause of loss. And they omit a portion of the policy called the ensuing loss provision that would then say that any resulting loss that isn't otherwise excluded would be covered. They take that off of their denial letter in order to hide the coverages from people. And then they're just going to leave it alone. Wear and tear is excluded, period. Well, if wear and tear resulted in hail damage, then it's covered with that ensuing loss provision that's tied to the wear and tear. And the vast majority of policies have that. And the vast majority of denial letters exclude it. They misrepresent the policy language all the time on these things. Multiple insurance companies, multiple states. I'm tracking this. It's very obvious. So the engineers are naming multiple claims one cause of loss. One. And they need to name all of them. And they don't. And it's very clear that it's a concerted effort to make this strategy work. That's one strategy. I've identified 15 different defenses that they use based on engineer reports and how they can get away with shit. They also might say it's old damage or existing damage. They might say that there's... Uh, they might call something mechanical and just use a, a term that doesn't mean shit. It doesn't mean anything. It's, it's a catch-all term. Anomaly. Yeah. It's the most ambiguous term of all time. It's a, mar- it's a marine anomaly. Yeah, it's a marine anomaly. Um, well, I don't see marine anomaly excluded in my policy anywhere, so anomaly must be covered. Yeah, so I mean, I, the, it's a definition, right? Mechanical. There are no damage defense. So they they go through this. I explain this in in my my courses. Um, They go through this and they're supposed to identify the extent of hail or wind damages. And then the adjuster is then supposed to identify for that engineer what the definition or thresholds for hail or wind damages in that policy is. But they don't. And then the engineer doesn't ask for it because the engineer wants to remain unbiased which is stupid because they actually have to find out what those thresholds are in order to be able to write a report effectively. So they don't get a definition from the policy. There probably isn't one anyway, but because they don't get the definition, they make their own definition up. So instead of identifying all hail damages, they instead identify only functional hail damage the way that they define it in this way. And then they might identify and define cosmetic hail damages And then they might identify and define cosmetic changes or cosmetic anomalies separately from cosmetic damages, something I believe is a concerted effort from them to change how they're doing things in order to combat the things that I've taught in my class. I really think that's because of me. I'm pretty proud of it. Anyway, (laughs) it's pretty cool. So if if they're naming their own definition and then they say there's no functional damage in the body and then in the conclusions they drop that word functional and just say there's no hail damages. Said so there's no hail, no functional hail damage. It's just no hail damages. Now the insurance companies say, well, they said that there was no hail damage. So we don't have a covered loss. And that is the no damage defense. I literally I literally in an engineering report, Matt, I am not making this up. I will send you the report so that you can look at it. In the uh, in the conclusion statement, kind of on the cover page, sort of the summary, the summary written narrative. The conclusion is we discovered no hail damage to the roof. Okay, and I, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but basically that statement, no hail damage to the roof. But you go down and you look at the photographs that he provided within his report, and annotated in the photo with big orange arrows pointing to 
a, a, a spot on the roof, and then that annotation is labeled hell You're damage. Shitting me. And in fact, I, I am do want not. That report. I am that's glorious. I'm happy. I, I, you know, and it's on a commercial. It's on a commercial loss. It went to litigation and was finally settled out. But yes, they said no hail damage on the roof, and that it said that in the report. And then, and you go through the pictures, and it absolutely that was a failure. And I internally, so an engineer will write a report. They'll often write things in there, and they and they make some determinations. And then there is an internal reviewer. People say peer review often, but that's really the wrong term. A peer review is something very specific. It's, it's usually someone outside of your organization trying to come up with the same results from an experiment. So it's not a peer review. It's an internal review. And this internal reviewer's job is to convince the engineer to change the language in their report in certain ways. And many times they'll have them change uh, the descriptions of photos to not say anything about hail damage. Just take that description off and just say general condition. Well, let's let's go through the policy and let's instead of saying functional damage here in the conclusions, we don't want there to be any, any ambiguity. Let's just take that word functional off. The engineers oftentimes have no idea how their report is being used as a weapon against the insur- uh, insured. They just know what their internal reviewer is asking them to do. And this internal reviewer is almost acting like a salesperson trying to convince these people to write it these different ways. And a good skeptical engineer at some point is going to go, why are they doing that? Why are they asking me to make these changes? And if they get smart enough that they fight back, they start getting less work. And if they fight back too much, they find out that they don't get enough work to support their family. And so they have to play ball. Or they don't make enough money. It's very bad. Right. It is part of the McKinsey model. It is a specific strategy built into the McKinsey model to use a third party that Uh you're very friendly with that you can kind of force to use specific languages or have some kind of say in what the report says. Why do you think that the documentation that is provided by the insured do you know what I mean? Whether it's their own engineering report or it's their own sort of, even if they go and hire a third party that's not the contractor, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? And let's just take a third party qualified roof inspector. Let's say I had a client. I was like, well, I've got a third party roof inspector. His name is Matt Mulholland, and he's going to come out and he's going to take a look at your roof and he's going to write a full report on your roof. He's going to talk about every blister. He's going to talk about every sort of, you know, where, you know, what the wear and tear in the state of the roof is. And that's one thing I would say is wear and tear is a general condition that is widespread across the property based on exposure to the same elements at the same time for the same for the same uh for the same for the same amount of time you know what i mean so if the sun hits the roof on the west slope the entire west slope is going to have an even amount of wear and tear you know now you may have a tree that brushes up against it and those shingles that are exposed to that same tree are going to have the same sort of condition to it and that's how you attribute what wear and tear is but one in the middle of the field of the shingle that has and there's only and you've got these random little spots all over the shingle you know where where there seems to be you know granule loss in its circular in nature I don't know what caused this widespread across the field of the roof that caused these little anomalies in the middle of the shingle. You know what I mean? And I'm not talking about a blister. I'm talking about a hailstone that hits the roof and they want to call that wear and tear. And it's just not wear so and that, tear. It's not. It's the definition and, and issue. You cannot give me the element that the entire roof is. Yeah. So you you hit it already. I mean, the, the issue is, and we're going to need more time on this discussion. Holy crap. Uh, but the issue is that wear and tear to an engineer means something different than an insurance policy. I, I've never seen a definition in insurance policy for wear and tear. The closest I've seen is from Farmer Smart Plan and their policy notices. Uh, but generally speaking, wear and tear from a policy perspective is a condition of the roof. Wear and tear as a cause of loss means something different. That would be the roof suddenly right. failing as a result of age alone nothing else is acting upon it other than sun and and normal weather yeah, conditions angles just automatically just fell right. off the just roof just sun damage there, right you should have put some sunscreen yeah. on that shit but when wear and tear 
Right. Or you get about to don't ding the bell. This is such a good copy. Don't ding it. Oh, <laughs> okay. Need to, and then we'll go. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap keep up going. With it. We'll keep going. We'll keep going. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, anyway, go ahead. Go ahead and wrap up. Go ahead and finish your thought. If, if wear and tear isn't we'll really the cause of loss, it's just a condition, then the cause of loss would be something else. So the primary cause of loss or approximate cause, the most efficient cause of loss, isn't the sun. It's the hail or the wind that comes in afterwards. But it could be considered a cause of loss, even though it's technically a condition, if it is a contributing cause. So you can have wear and tear as a contributing cause that then results in hail or wind damage. And most policies still would pay for the hail or wind damage. And the engineers are only asked to name the one cause of loss. And so they're doing what they're asked to do. They're doing their role. They don't even know what it is. As, as a PA or as a contractor, we need to tell the policyholder that they need to demand that any engineer that comes on their property should identify all the causes of loss that are acting on that property to produce the law. Absolutely. That's what I, I, I have said that a thousand times. And I don't care who it is that's looking at your policy. If you are not there to absolutely speak to the claim itself, if you're going to talk about one thing, then you need to talk about all things. You know what I'm saying? Like, so, so I believe that an insurance adjuster, and I guess um, by you know, an engineer would be a qualified person, but he doesn't have the policy. And so if you don't have the policy, you can't really speak to coverages and what would be covered and not covered. But often they show up with this idea in their head and whenever they go to insurance claim training school on how to do engineering reports for an insurance claim. And if you're trying to tell me that they don't go through some sort of indoctrination on how to handle a report for an insurance claim or what the work product is expected out of them. You kiss my ass because that is absolutely 100% no, wrong because I know they do, but they don't know why it's wrong. They're not told the whole well, strategy. And that's my point. They, and so, and, and it's almost exactly. reasonable. They've asked us to do this. We have to do what our client states. That is the rule for engineers. Whatever our assignment is, that's what we have to perform. We don't have to do any more. We don't have to do any less. We don't want to provide them too much information to make this thing 25 pages long. But when they go through that internal review, I feel like more engineers should realize that there's something fishy. You know, it's, these are smart people, really? or at least they're supposed to be. On, and they have licenses. Yeah. And they have sometimes, and, sometimes and they, they don't, you know, <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I'm talking about the ones that do. I, 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 I love it. The guy that comes out and looks at it, it's often not stamped by the guy. That's you true. know, it's, it's, I mean, it, I have even engineered firm licenses though. Around. And you know, I've come across three of these in the last two weeks where the engineering firm was not licensed in that state. And even though the engineer that signed and stamped it was, because that firm wasn't licensed in that state, it's still not a legal uh, firm. So file a complaint with the Board of Engineers for a firm acting without a license in that state, and that report will be thrown out. And we've done that three times in the last That's two weeks. Yeah. I mean, That's it, very interesting. Guys, know who your licensing boards are. Really, really important. And we'll try to so find easy. some some links at least for Yeah, you, you can you can Google so, search this uh, for any state. Just simply Google your state's name engineer license search. And it's the usually the first thing that pops up. And you can you can search for the name of the individual an individual and and look for it as a professional engineer. And then you could go to a firm or an entity license and do a professional engineer entity and look for the firm's name and see if there's a license. And oftentimes I find that the firm is not licensed more often than the engineer isn't, but sometimes the engineer is not licensed either. So here's a, here's another thing I do is once I get the engineering report from the carrier, I then immediately email the engineer who was out on site and wrote the report and ask him, is this your full and complete report? I, you agree I with definitely have report? found reports where the engineer's report was changed without the engineer that stamped it knowing. There are plenty of documented cases like that, uh, in, including Superstorm Sandy when U.S. forensics 
got in trouble for exactly that kind of a thing. They're still around, by the way. They didn't go out of business. They Crazy. Are. Yeah, they're still hmm. here. And uh, the American Policyholder Association also has a tool on it doesn't work. their website that you it's it broken. doesn't work. Okay. So I was I'm, just a, I'm a board advisor for the APA. Um, if if you are curious about whether or not your engineering uh, report has fraud involved in it, you can send it over to us. You can send it to me directly if you'd like to, and, and we'll take a look at those things. But the, the tool, which was um, a preliminary early version of an AI thing that is being built out, it isn't currently working. So not right now. Oh, okay. Well, that's... But you can still have someone put eyes on it and tell you it anyway. So... Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of resources out there within our community. And I'm very proud of our community. I think we have a great community. And there's a lot of resources. There's a lot of thought leaders. And there's a lot of really good information. All you've got to do is just... If you want to find out all the ways in which engineers are... Um, acting unethically and the tactics that they use and how to combat them and actually start winning the engineer claims anyway, you can go to buildingexperts.institute, get a membership there for $109 a month, and there is a course on there called Defeating Unethical Engineer Tactics, and it is very comprehensive, and it has everything that you need to know about how that strategy works so that you can avoid it, how to identify what denial you'll get in advance before you get it so that you can get the right kind of documentation to avoid it, and then what to do even if you get involved and they still send an engineer out, how to work with that engineer to make sure that they have the corrected assignment before they go out, what to do while you're on site with them, and how to review a report when it's all said and done. Uh, but there's also template emails, uh, phone scripts on what it is that you're talking to them about. All those kinds of things are in there, and it is updated regularly. I've had to put some new things in it lately just because they've been changing some of the stuff that they're doing. And we will keep it updated. It's, it's, a, it's a living course, so to speak. And for $109 a month, you also I get access it. to every other future course that comes out. You can go to buildingexperts.institute. 